Today we'll be discussing which album is better, Nirvana's Nevermind or Pearl Jam's 10, and we'll be discussing cognitive bias and vaccine hesitancy. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, in honor of the fact that both albums turned 30 years old this month, we will compare Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10. And we'll be discussing cognitive bias in medicine and how that can lead to diagnostic errors in physicians and what it can tell us about vaccine hesitancy. But first, Ali, I wanted to talk to you about a bit of a sad topic. Too sad. Last week was the death of comedian Norm Macdonald. So I thought I'd kind of get your thoughts on uh, Norm Macdonald passing. Canadian? Yeah, you know, guy. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a fun, uh, lighthearted episode as we compare 10 versus uh, Nevermind. But we could have also compared uh, Norm Macdonald versus no one. <laughs> That's my long-winded way of saying he was an incomparable comedian. Mm-hmm. And one of the best things I heard, it was on, I, I hate to be too much of a CBC guy here, but it was on Q on CBC and it was Tom Power uh, hosting this segment. And, and Tom Power clearly had a ton of love for Norm Macdonald, uh, so much so that he told a story about Norm being the guy who helped him get out of bed after he had a particularly dark episode and couldn't get out of bed for two days, a, a depressive episode. So he set it up, but he had a great love and affinity and admiration for Norm. And then he, he showed his, you know, he played his clip, his interview from 2016, where he was talking to Norm. And I loved Norm talking about why he told this moth story, this famous moth story, already famous that he made infamous on Conan. I loved hearing Norm talk about why he roasted that uh, that actress. I'm blanking on her name. So you mean Courtney Thorne Smith from Melrose Place? I do. Melrose Place. They all blend into yeah. uh, one another, those shows from that era. So he roasted um, her, right? He roasted her pretty good. And uh, he was talking about, in both cases, how it's just something that happened, you know, with the moth story. Conan's like, I want you to sit in for the second segment. And Norm was like, I, I have nothing left to tell you. I have nothing new that I can share. He's like, no, 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 no you got to sit here. So he goes, okay. So in the commercial break, he thought of this story that Colin Quinn had told him it's a two-liner. It's a total two-line joke. And he made it last that entire five or six-minute segment in a way that only Norm could. So he said it was born out of necessity, (laughs) but he he really made it his own. But it was a thing. He goes, in those days, you know, there was no internet. There was no computer, as he said. You didn't have a computer. (laughs) So those things would just live in that moment, and then it would be gone. Somebody would be like, hey, remember that time Norm did that? And then somebody would be like, no, I don't remember. And then they'd be, they'd be like, yeah, me neither. You know, that was the entire life of it back then. And with Courtney Thornsmith, he just went off on her for no good reason and started calling her show. Oh, yeah, I know your show. It's called Box Office Poison. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, Norm MacDonald, I think he – I don't know if people appreciated his, him as much at the time, like say when he was on SNL, at least for me, like his style of delivery and his jokes, the way that he wrote jokes and people wrote jokes for him was so different. It would be like the setup and then his enthusiastic punchline. You know, I wa- I rewatched the OJ thing for so him good. where it's like the verdict was handed down and it turns out murder is legal in California. Like doing a horrible impression of Norm Macdonald, but like just that – it's so funny. And then you, you think about it. And for me, his genius was exemplified in the Bob Saget roast from like 2008. So sure. those, and we talked about roast in the show. They're usually very offensive, lots of blue language. And he is so brilliant. He did the complete opposite. I don't know if you've anyone's heard you have to listen to it it's on it's on youtube but basically he tells the most kind of corny hacky middle school type jokes like bob uh, bob your uh, your face is like a flower bob uh, a cauliflower like that was one of them and then he just did a hundred of those yeah it was he basically just you get it because you look 
He looked like a cauliflower. And then he just went on and on and on. And Jesse Thorne hosts the show called Bullseye. And he was presenting that the other day. And I, I, I loved this whole presentation of it. And he was saying that the crowd was okay mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And he goes, maybe they weren't. Maybe the laughs were sweetened by Comedy Central. But the comedians on the dais were absolutely dying. Yeah, they couldn't believe it. And I remember that because I watched that whole roast. And I remember yeah. the comedians were dying. They couldn't believe it. I would say it was polite laughter in the and a lot of and confused laughter. Like, yeah. what is going on? Yeah. It wasn't so much like Andy Kaufman singing Mighty Mouse or stuff like that. It wasn't that out there where it turns into hatred. It was not like that at all. No, no, Just a bit either. more confusion, polite laughs, and the comedians really being like, I can't believe he's doing this. It's yeah. it's it's amazing. So a Canadian guy has earned his place in the history of comedy, I think. And, you know, mm. obviously our thoughts go out to his uh, family, his brother, of course, Neil McDonald, a prominent reporter for the CBC yeah. here in Canada. I wanted to share one more thing on that OJ thing. It's a conversation between Conan and David Letterman. And I don't think I've ever heard David Letterman laugh quite this way, but it's Conan talking to Letterman about Norm McDonald. And they start by saying, I don't think he has a great work ethic. Am I wrong? And David, yeah, I guess I don't think he does. But what he does with what he has is phenomenal. And his willingness to go places, he was fired from SNL, allegedly for telling too many OJ jokes. And the head of NBC was a friend of OJ's. Mm. But one of the jokes he tells, he goes, there was some knitted hat found on the scene of the crime and uh, OJ picked up the hat and said, Hey, be careful with that. That's my lucky stabbing hat. (laughs) And (laughs) Letterman laughed so hard. And Conan goes, would you ever tell that joke? Letterman goes, I would never tell that joke. I would laugh in the room and then tell my writer, thank you for that. We're not telling that joke. And Conan goes, yeah, I would never, I would feel queasy. I would feel odd. He goes, I would feel anxiety in the lead up to that punchline. But Norm did it. And then Norm would stare at you with that (laughs) smug look like, hey, that's your problem if you're not laughing because that's a good joke. Oh, God. Anyway, God rest his soul. Norm MacDonald, thank you for the years you gave us. Bob, you have a lot of well-wishers here tonight. And a lot of them would like to throw you down one. A well. They want to murder you in a well. <laughs> Seems a little harsh, but apparently they want to murder you in a well. It says here on this card. <laughs> now, but Bob has a beautiful face like a flower. Yeah, cauliflower. <laughs> no offense, but your face looks like a cauliflower. Okay, so Ali, listeners often comment, sometimes comment to us, that we don't talk about music as much. We talk a lot about comedy, we movies, heard it a few TV, times. and obviously medicine, but we don't really talk about music. So I thought what we'd do as we're approaching the tail end of 2021 is we would look back at 1991. Some music critics called that the greatest year for modern music. And so we, that's debatable for modern rock music, but we, we can talk about that over time. So I thought, why don't we kind of review that year? So I thought this is what we do. Over the next few months, we'll pick albums that came out in 1991, and we'll kind of compare them. And we'll see, we'll have a little bit of a debate, which one we think we each like better. And then maybe at the end of the year, in December, we can go through our top albums from 1991. Sure. We make our own list. So I want to start off today with two albums that came out at the same time that they really both changed popular music as we know it, especially rock music. And that would be 30 years ago in September 1991, Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10 both came out. So I thought we'd talk about both those and get your thoughts on, on both of them. So why don't we start off with Nirvana's Nevermind?
So that was Smells Like Teen Spirits, such a huge hit for Nirvana. It really changed music, that song. And it's it's crazy how it, how it lasts today. A different version of that song is used in the trailer for Black Widow hmm. for that movie. And my kids saw it and they love Smells Like Teen Spirit. So I've been listening to this album in preparation for this episode and they keep wanting to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. They both love that song. Hmm. I'll tell you a story about my friend Cass. This is a friend of mine from high school and he was always at the cutting edge of new what we call alternative music at the time. And so he decided in early 1991, early 1991, he was going to, he had a jean jacket. He wrote out the names of these up and coming bands that at that time, nobody had heard of. And it was Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nine Inch Nails. And what happened over the course of that year, 1991, is each of these bands started becoming more and more popular. And he's like, ah, come on. Now everybody knows this one. Now everybody knows this one. And then Nine Inch Nails, at least, you know, okay, maybe that. And of course, they became super popular as well. Mm. And what also happened that year is that your friend Cass went on to be your most annoying friend of all time. Because no. that's what happens with those guys. Because they're always like, yeah, dude, I was eating sriracha in 1988 when I was visiting uh, the you know Southeast Asia. And then we we're like, yeah, fine, dude. But now we love it. What do you want from no, us? Should not, we not, not love it? He is not one of those guys. No. Okay. But he was always on the cutting edge of music. I remember that so clearly. Like, I'm like, you knew about these bands before everybody else did. So I have a friend like that. Michael Bickler introduced us to Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And he went to see them as an opening band oh, in wow. Montreal. And he went to see them because he liked them, the opener, more. And he was like, no one was there. It was ridiculous. We're like, whatever, Michael. And then sure enough, six months later, they were just a phenom. Well, why don't we talk a bit about Nirvana? So, I mean, most people know formed in Aberdeen, Washington. It was initially Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic. And then they went through a bunch of drummers, eventually hired Dave Grohl. And basically, did you know that they were, Cobain and Novoselic were at first a cover band? Did you know that? And did you know what? I did. Do you know yeah. what? What? Okay, then what? Well, a lot of people would be potentially surprised by this, but if you listen to some of their their vibe, I kind of got it afterwards. I didn't get it at the time, but they were a CCR yeah. tribute band. Yeah. Crazy, eh? John Fogarty, which is so, it feels like such wholesome rock, but CCR also, they rocked pretty hard. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm, rocked pretty mm -hmm, hard mm -hmm. and they had some good tunes and I would have loved to have heard Kurt Cobain's spin yeah, on, exactly. on, on those exactly. lyrics. Exactly, that yeah. would have been interesting. And so, and there are other influences, the Melvins, who are also from Washington, Mudhoney, and then Sabbath, right? Like a lot of these bands that we're going to be talking about in the next few months, Black Sabbath was a huge influence for them. And most people know Nirvana had an album before this, Bleach, that was released in 1990 with a different drummer. And then they decided to kind of record Nevermind. And that was recorded with producer Butch Vig, who would later become one of the founding members of the band. I don't know. So garbage, garbage. Garbage. Early oh, I thought you meant it's garbage that I don't know. Garbage the band. Garbage, yeah. gar gar yeah, right. garbage the band. Then the album was kind of recorded, then released, and the rest is, is kind of history. You could see, I, apparently Kurt Cobain at the time was listening to like, not just the Melvins, but R.E.M., the Smithereens, the Pixies, and they want to be more melodic. And if you compare Bleach to Nevermind, it's definitely a bit more of a polished album. And apparently they didn't really like the way it sound afterwards. Yeah, can you imagine yeah. that? They thought They thought it was too commercial sounding, I think, which is... I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That's because I think they felt that they were very punk rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and they were bringing this punk rock aesthetic. But you know what happens to punk rock? Often nobody ever hears about it outside of your small community of punk rockers. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what was Cobain's perspective on his uh, his fame and his fortune in the end. I'm sure he enjoyed some of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on Kurt Cobain and his life and his issues. But yeah, it's interesting. They didn't but I see what they're saying, right? Like it is some of the songs are kind of slickly produced, especially Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I can see why they may have been a bit disappointed, but I think that's why they were such a success, right? Because they were able to bridge this 
punk pop yeah not pop yeah pop, but punk and pop together right in but a way yeah, not, not aggressive not, type of pop yeah, exactly hyper pop exactly sure. so i think that probably has a lot to do with butch vig so in other words he made their sound accessible to the masses maybe they were disappointed in it but i think that's pro- maybe what what broke them through i think so too i think for those of us who were listening to like rock and, and metal at the time this was a completely different mm-hmm. aesthetic and it was i don't know i i I find it funny that they didn't like what it sounded like because at the time, I don't think any of us were like, oh, too commercial. No. It was groundbreaking right. music. We were so like, what is and, this? Because you're right. Yeah. It, there was the hair metal, right? Yes. And then Poison, there was pop music. Motley Crue, yeah, and then there Warren, was pop music. I'll go on. That, that was it. Yes. This was this kind of crazy in between. A couple interesting things. Do you know how they got that title, Smells Like Teen Spirit? From something a friend of his was doing, yeah, a musician yeah. friend of his. What, yeah. what is that? So- his friend was Kathleen Hanna, who was a lead singer of Bikini Kill, which was a kind of riot girl band back in the day. And I guess she wrote on his apartment wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. Now, she hmm. meant that he smelled like the deodorant teen spirit, which Cobain's girlfriend at the time had bought and used teen spirit. So like they were dating, so he would smell like it, but he didn't understand that. And he thought it was like some revolutionary slogan. So that's why he wrote the song. So he didn't really understand until after the song came out that it wasn't. uh... That is something more to be embarrassed about than the commercial sound of the album. (laughs) I think the fact that you are so. (laughs) There we go. I agree. And deodorant is so not punk rock, dude. And then have you heard about this controversy? Everybody I think knows the, album cover, right? It's a baby mm-hmm. swimming in yeah. a pool naked and there's a, a dollar bill on a fish hook, right? Yeah. Have you heard about this recent controversy with this album cover? I have. And it smells like a cash grab is what I would say to that. It smells completely... I got no sympathy for this. Right. You can explain what yeah, this is. So right, this so. is like Because there was something about lifelong damages that they're suing for. And I was like... You got to get over yourself, man. This yeah, is so shameless, shameless. The boy in the picture is named Spencer Eldon. He was a f- son of a friend of the photographer, uh, right? Who took the picture. Yeah. And in sure. fact, this guy, Spencer, recreated the album cover on the 10th, 17th, and 25th anniversaries, wearing swim shorts, though. Probably best for all concerned. Mm-hmm. But then last month, he files this lawsuit saying again, he has lifelong damages, child pornography, violated child pornography statutes, etc. So, I don't know. I mean, it seems strange that you would participate for up to 25 years after it came out, and then suddenly, like, mm. well, actually, I don't, I don't know. It's very unusual. That's uh, a very kind way to say it. Well, nevertheless, why don't we talk about what we think about this album? Like, what did you think about this album? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it... There's a few <laughs> in every in every genre, whatever it is, there's always something that comes along. And I always remember thinking, like, are you allowed to do this? Is this allowed? Yeah. Like I'm talking about pineapple on pizza. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, is this is this breaking some laws? There's things that come along that just blow your mind sometimes. And part of you goes, where was this? Why wasn't mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like Jim Why Gaffigan had that joke about squeezable ketchup, like it, how long it took mm-hmm. for them to go to, from glass bottle to squeezable bottle. And you're like, are you, this is insane that this took a hundred years. Yeah. Ketchup's been around since something mm-hmm. like 1905. This is how I felt. I was like, how... Is this not allowed? Is that why we didn't have this grunge sound? Or are we so sheltered from things happening in the Pacific Northwest that this is like an exclusive leak of a really underground sound? I just could not wrap my head around it for so long. And because I loved it so much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really liked it. I liked the bands. that I also loved Soundgarden. I liked Alice in Chains. All that, that whole scene. I just remember being like, how did this not already exist for the last yep. 30 years. I mean, it's as you said, like there's the album and what this album represents. I mean, this album changed the course of music history without a doubt. I mean, this is where every single quote unquote grunge or quote unquote alternative band was signed after this, right? And we'll talk about Pearl Jam in a second. Their successes really do a lot to Nirvana's Nevermind. Smells Like Teen Spirit is a stone cold classic. There's no denying Mm -hmm. it. I said, you know, my kids who are young, 13 and younger, they love this song. It speaks to people. It's catchy. And I would say the first 
six songs on this are all as well Stone Cold classics. That so that's like In Bloom, which is probably my second favorite song in this album. Come as you are, Breed, Lithium, and Polly. Those Lithium's are amazing. Th- those are excellent songs. So. I think it's it's game changing. I can't say enough more positive things about it. Uh, it also has a hidden track. Remember the hidden track on this album, right? It ends with something in the way, and then there's a bunch of like several minutes oh, of like silence. Remember listening to that at home, and then you're like, "What? Oh, I can hear!" And then it comes on. I mean, the last song is kind of not good, but it was it was <laughs> you know before this, it was really the Beatles who had hidden tracks, and and it yeah, wasn't yeah, it yeah. wasn't the most common thing. And then after this, it seems like every band put through it a hidden track for the next like five or six years but Let's talk about Pearl Jam 10. And just to be clear, we are going to have a, how do we say this? A, uh, a veritable Sophie's choice here, Asif. At the end, we have to choose. We're going to do the desert island thing. You're on a desert right, island. You have to pick one. And which album do you take with you? All right. So we'll keep that in mind. And listeners, keep this in mind. We're pumping them both up. We're pumping both their tires. But which one is the one? You only get to have one. Which one do you take? All right. So Pearl Jam 10. What are your thoughts on this album? So, yeah, I mean, I like this album a lot, too. Let's just give people a bit of background. So one of the guitarists in Pearl Jam is Stone Gossard, and bassist is Jeff Ament. They played together in Mother Love Bone, and you might remember Mother Love Bone. A lot of people know Mother Love Bone because one of their songs is on the single soundtrack, which we'll talk about. It came out in 1992, so maybe next year we'll talk about it on the 30th anniversary. But A lot of people know Mother Love Bone because their lead singer died of a drug overdose. Right, so, so Andrew Wood died of a drug overdose. And then, of course, there was a tribute album to Andrew Wood, which was called... I don't know. Oh my God, you do. Temple of the Dog. Of course. Oh, that was a tribute to... I love Temple of the Dog. I didn't know it was a tribute album to yeah. him. So... Okay. I thought it was a great collab. Well, hopefully we'll talk about that later on another episode. It's very interesting what they did. They recorded an instrumental demo with those two guys, plus Mike McCready, who became the regular lead guitarist for Pearl Jam, and Matt Cameron, who was is the drummer for Soundgarden mm-hmm. and was back then as well. He's such a good drummer. And <laughs> Matt Cameron, I, I love the way his drumming sounds. And then Quaintance was actually the old drummer for Red Hot Chili Peppers for Chad Smith, gave the demo to Eddie Vedder, who listened to it and wrote all the lyrics for a bunch of the songs and then sent it back to them. And they liked it a lot. So they said, okay, you could be the lead singer. And then they went mm. and recorded it with Rick Parishar, who also produced Temple of the Dog. It's interesting if you read, <laughs> it's crazy, you, you read interviews with the band members, they're like, we like the sound of all of our albums, except this album, we don't like the way it was mixed. <laughs> they say there's too much reverb in it. So in fact, in 20, 2008 or 2009, they had Brendan O'Brien remix it. Brendan O'Brien is one of the main producers that Soundgarden went to after this. He produced verses and many, many albums afterwards. He's kind of their go-to producer for many years. So he remixed it. You can listen to the remix. I don't think it sounds too different, but whatever. I'm not, yeah. you know, an audiophile like these guys in the band exactly. are. And then, you know, there's some classic songs in this, right? Dude, there's not some classic songs. I don't know what the hell you're talking about, right? This is, I'm going to go on record by saying this is probably the best debut album of any band mm-hmm. I've ever heard yeah. of all time. Uh, yeah. And I say that as a <laughs> a Columbia House member, a Columbia House Records. If you tried to explain Columbia House to your kids right now, they would be like, you idiot. That sounds like such a scam. What are you talking about? And you're like, it was. It was. It was. And we went along with it. But my point is Columbia Records, how many albums I would get you know, like Black Sheep, I remember. I'm like, this song is amazing. This band is going to be amazing. No one one song yeah, that exactly, killed yeah. on that song. There were so many albums like that. So I was like in this, I just lived in a world of like one hit wonders for like a few years there. And then 10 came along and I was just like, this is impossible. Did these guys work on this album for 20 years to have this many amazing <laughs> mm-hmm, songs mm-hmm, on it? Mm-hmm really just the best debut. And for me also, the storytelling 
you have Eddie Vedder singing, you know, he'll, he'll sing in a woman's voice, like, you know, what is it? He'll sing from a woman's point of view, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, from that storytelling point of view, from the stories behind the songs, right? If you know what the song Jeremy is about, a song which I didn't like as much, to be quite honest, but then it's about this kid who shot himself in front of his English class and all of a sudden it gives something to the song, you know, and the same thing with Alive was a song about his own, a revelation that his father, the man he thought his father was not his father, he's not his real father. And he discovered that in his late teens. So, I mean, you know, there's some great meat behind these songs. So the lyrics, these they take you on a journey. Also, personal addition here, the song Black is a song that I can sing at karaoke. And so once you have oh, your karaoke song, karaoke you're going to fall in song. love. Yeah. One day uh, on this podcast, you guys will find out my karaoke song. But oh, yeah. uh, not, not, not to me, we will get to that album <laughs> that it comes from. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree with you. It is so good. Again, you talk about Stone Cold classics on this album. I would say- I don't. You do. You've said the word Stone Cold four times. That's because, by the way, that's from- Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, I love Stone Cold Steve Austin as well. Exactly. No, it's a phrase used by Scott Ackerman and Adam Scott. They have a bunch of several podcasts, uh, like Are You Talking You Two to Me, where they talk about they go through the discography okay. of bands. They've done U2, right. they've done REM, they've done the Talking right. Heads, and they always talk about Stone Cold Classics. So that's a shout out to those guys. I love those guys. I only think of like when men go, She's a stone cold fox. So I thought you were you were taking some like from some Will Ferrell movie. No, but that's sexist, so let's move on. So yeah. the uh the way to make it awkward. Exactly. So these are no stone cold classics these all get the stone cold stunner that's what i say yeah i would say the first seven songs on this once i'll just go through them in order once even flow alive why go black jeremy and oceans are classics like it's amazing you just keep listening to this album and they're they're amazing so uh, dude, I can't believe you're not. Garden is so Garden amazing. Garden is so Garden good. Is like, Actually, Deep is really good, too. I will win. Oh, there we go. And uh, and the last song, Release, is excellent. It is a yeah. superb yeah. song. See? You said the first seven. Okay. Maybe one is okay, and the rest are amazing. Okay, well, this let's, really let's like do this, then. Let's do this. We're doing it right now. We're doing it right now. Well, you know, we're what we're doing is voting. We have to do the Desert okay. Island. Which yeah. of these albums is better? I, okay, you, you can define better in any way you want, but I which will. One? I will. I'm defining it by the desert island. Yeah, fair enough. So 10 is, I believe, a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I believe it is an incredible musical journey that you go on as mm-hmm. you listen to it. Amazing lyrics, amazing musicianship. And yet, desert island, I'm taking Nevermind, wow. if you can believe that. Yeah. And, and the reason is because of the mood I would be in. On a desert island, I need anthems, okay? I will be angry. This album tapped into my angst, my teen angst. And I I don't even think I was a teen at the time. I was a teen. It was like, you know, that weird middle-class immigrant angst that you have no business having. I had tons of it. And this album tapped into something I had. And I think listening to Nevermind will get me building a boat. A raft, oh, or, or at the go. very least, a, a hut. Whereas Pro Jam, I will lie down, I will weep, and it will touch me in my soul. But that's not what you need when you're on a desert island alone. Well, from my point of view, like I said, you can't argue with the impact Nirvana Nevermind had. It is easily the most influential album in the past, I would say, 30 years or 40 years, without a doubt. But I just go by which one. I like better, and I kind of alluded to it when we went through the track listings. I think Nevermind tracks after Polly. If you pull up the track listing after Polly, there's Territorial Pissings, Drain You, Lounge Act, Stay Away. Those songs all kind of sound the same to me, and I, I thought that before I re-listened to it. I remember a lot of songs sounding the same and not very distinct, and I kind mm. of feel the same way. It ends well with On a Plane and Something in the Way. Something in the Way is great. Yeah, But then I go back to Pearl Jam, there's probably only one bad song on 10, and that's Porch. And it's the type of song that you think you remember being good, but if I re- when I re-list to it, I'm like, eh, the song's not that good. But every other song is good. And this is the proof for me, is over the past couple of days in preparation for this, I listen to each album once, 
And then guess which album I kept listening to over and over Well, again. I think you said it was Nevermind with your children. What? Okay, was, no, that the, was a personal journey you were going right. on. Right. So, you kept no, on listening. No, in fact, I try to get them to listen. I try and get them to listen to 10. Like, well, we don't like this. Play Nevermind again. Yeah. So, yeah, ah. they want to listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit all the time. But for me, personally, just when I'm on my own, I listen to 10 all the time. So, for me, it's 10. Amazing. Huh? Hopefully, we're on a desert island together. Huh? Then we can. <laughs> oh, no? but yeah, that's cheating. But sure, we'd be very interested to hear what people say. I think there's a lot of varied opinions. So uh, let us know on social media or email us which album you think is better. We're going to be doing more albums in the next couple of months. We'll leave them up to a surprise, but should be exciting. All right, Asif, now I am very, uh, you know, I'm proud of you, but we have talked about the fallibility of your profession, mm -hmm. and we've talked about it a fair amount, and you are open to admitting that doctors do make mistakes, which is important to me, because if you weren't able to admit that, this podcast would go nowhere fast. Now, in the errors that doctors often commit, you've talked about this variety of biases, and I don't know if the general public thinks about these biases all the time, or let's say often enough. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the biases, maybe an overview and why you wanted to focus on cognitive bias. Yeah. So it all has to do with how physicians make mistakes. So there is bias in terms of the different terminology, which is like being biased against people from certain backgrounds, certain minority groups, which I think we'll talk about on a subsequent episode. Yeah, we'll need to do that. But this is cognitive bias. So these are these errors that you make in thinking, right? And a lot of this idea of, of cognitive bias is, is the quick kind of intuitive solutions that people come up with or ways to address problems. And a lot of people have read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about these very quick using these these shortcuts basically to get to the right answer for certain things. But he also talks about how there's some fallibility in those. I think people who've had a loved one or been that person, been that loved one in a hospital bed and seen a doctor come through and flip through charts at rapid speed, you know, and just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're like, wait, you're not reading any of that. What's happening? And I think, I think that's where my mind goes, that it's yeah. like, oh yeah, I know what this is. I know what this is. I don't need to be right, too thorough right. about this. I'm, sh I'm sure I know what exactly. it is. Exactly. So this is, this idea is doctors often use what are called heuristics. So these are these cognitive strategies or mental shortcuts that are made almost automatically or unconsciously, and we use them for decision making. But that can help to speed up things, right? You know, if you've seen someone with appendicitis all the time, fever, what we call anorexia, not eating, right lower quadrant pain, so that's basically appendicitis. Let's get a move on here. Let's not waste time looking at a million other things when we think that's mm -hmm. what's going on. But it can also lead to errors, right? And so we'll t that's what I want to talk about is these errors. So when this heuristic fails, that's what cognitive bias is. And there's a couple of good papers about this. If you think back, like, so Malcolm Gladwell kind of made this topic popular, but the real person who did most of the research in this is actually an economist, Daniel Kahneman, whose name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. But Kahneman? It's K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N. You pronounce it like he's from south, the south of India. But uh, he talks about this dual process mode of thinking, okay? So the fast system of thinking is type one, which is the blink stuff like Malcolm Gladwell talks about. Automatic, unconscious, effortless. And then the slower system is type two, conscious, controlled, analytical, but effortful, right? You need to sit and really think about what are the pros and cons here? What, what kind of makes sense? These are two types of thinking that somebody has going on at all times, Correct. Right? Your brain Correct. Correct. will divert to one or the other depending on the situation. Correct. And But the problem with heuristics is they're using the type one, right? It's What happens is we assemble all this information in our, in our mind and then we use these heuristics to get to the solution quickly, right? So doctors often use this type one method of thinking, but that can lead to these errors. So I thought we'd talk about – so there's different kind of cognitive biases that cause errors. So there's these deficits in clinical reasoning, and I'll link to a very good review article from this guy named Jeffrey Norman, who's at McMaster University in Canada. He's a good review article, like talking about the these things. Let's go Marauders! Was that the name? I don't know. I don't so, know. That was one of the names. Why don't I give you some examples of the cognitive bias in medicine? 
There's one that's called the satisfaction of search bias, which is also called premature closure. This is ending your search or ending your differential diagnosis because you think, oh, this makes sense. So in other words, a radiologist is looking at a CT scan of your abdomen and chest, right? And they're like, oh, yep, I see a, a lung nodule. Looks like lung cancer. That's good. I found the cause of this person's symptoms and they sign up their report. But they didn't look at the whole report and see, oh, Actually, there was also a liver nodule, which has uh, prognostic implications or things like that. They didn't complete the whole thing. Another one is what's called availability bias. So a recent case can influence you, I should say, in one direction or another, right? If I just saw a patient with a rare disease the day before who uh, came in with like a seizure, right? Which And a seizure is something we see pretty commonly in my field. The next day I see somebody... The cause is very unlikely to be due to this rare disorder. But I think, well, I just saw a patient like that. Maybe I better test for that, right? And you can see that kind of bias could make an error in either direction, right? It could actually be a, not an error, but a good thing, right? Maybe you're picking up a really rare diagnosis, but you also could be spending tons of money investigating something that's very unlikely, right? Because there's many other causes for seizures other than this rare diagnosis. Similarly, there's what's called this, it's kind of almost the opposite. It's called zebra retreat, okay? Like zebra, the, the, the animal. As opposed to the other multiple types of zebras, yeah. That's right, that's right. So there's many kind of um, common axioms, I guess, in medicine. And one is physicians are taught, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? So think a common thing, not a super rare thing. But then sometimes people had that drilled into their head too much. So if something is looking like a rare thing, right, don't try and pigeonhole into something common, right? But you've been taught, oh, rare things are rare. So don't automatically assume that's what's going on. So it's knowing, okay, actually, you have to look at this. A couple others, there's what's called diagnostic momentum or patient labels. And this happens all the time. So you have a regular visitor to the emergency room who comes in always seeking narcotics, right? I need, uh, the only thing that helps me is opiates. I need this. I, I need morphine, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And they come in with abdominal pain. You're like, yeah, just more drug-seeking behavior as, as some physicians will dismiss this as. And they actually have appendicitis and their appendix bursts, you know? It's the old thing in school. The bad kid was labeled the bad kid forever. That was, you're never going to get out of that, right? I guess some some bias at work there too. Okay. Yeah. And then two more I'll, I'll mention. One is called confirmation bias, and this happens the most. And I've heard of it. Yeah. So this is the selective gathering and interpretation of evidence consistent with current beliefs, and then the neglect of evidence that contradicts them. So I'll give you an example of a patient I saw years ago. So I saw this young boy who came in with weakness of their lower extremities, right? And often that cause of that, especially if it's a rapid onset weakness, could be what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this, mm, but this is- I have, it's I a have. Ner- it's an autoimmune attack on your nerves. It causes weakness, often in your legs, but arms too can even interfere with your breathing. It can be seen after immunization. So that's why sometimes people are talking about it. Are we seeing it after the vaccines go- going on today? That hasn't really panned out, but that's not the point of the story. So for that, you should have no reflexes. When I check your, you know, when you're doctor hammers on you with their hammer. That, yeah. that, that's checking. So you should have no reflex. So I saw a patient who didn't have reflexes. So I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I think this is what's going on. But then I did what's called the plantar response. So the plantar response is, you guys have probably had your doctor do this. They kind of tickle the bottom of your foot, right? I don't know if you've had them do this. And they look for your big toe. I've had that. That wasn't a doctor though. No, let's not talk about that. Okay. So your toe should go up or down. And if it goes down or doesn't move, then that usually may indicate a nerve problem or something like that. But if it goes up, it can indicate a problem with your brain itself. Okay. So the toes went up and I'm like, well, maybe that's just my, you know, maybe I'm just not doing this properly, this test properly, even though I've been a neurologist for like 10 plus years at this point. So I probably know what I'm doing when I examine a patient. So I kind of discounted that. And I thought they had Guillain-Barre syndrome. But anyway, somebody had ordered an MRI scan of the brain. And what they had was a brain tumor. And the brain tumor was causing the toes to go upwards. Okay, so find that finding. But the brain tumor had dropped metastases and coated all of the nerves. So then it looked like a Guillain-Barre syndrome, a nerve problem. But they had these upgoing toes. So what I was doing in my head was I was discounting something I saw on the patient because I already assumed that they had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Obviously, we identified the brain tumor and everything, you know, uh, and the patient was treated appropriately. 
that that was myself doing this confirmation bias. Yeah, I think this is very common. Uh, people who've had long-term experiences in hospitals with uh, stuff that's not easily diagnosable, what finally can save somebody is one doctor coming and being like, I saw this when I was on rotation in Boston or something like that, right? Or, oh, I remember seeing, and you're like, wow, a team of five people could not recognize what I'm going through, but one person saw it because they saw it once somewhere. But, well, let's talk about that in a second. That is true that that happens, but it's also that person looking at the whole picture, right? Not mm. just going with what's assumed. And that's what I do. If I'm asked to do a consultation on a patient I've never seen before who has a big, huge chart, I read the chart and go through everything because that's how you get to the, by looking at everything. The last bias I'll talk to you about is this called framing. It's basically how you frame a question. So if you tell people, okay, you need to have a surgery. The survival rate is 90%. More people will be agreeable to that surgery if you say the survival rate is 90% versus saying the mortality rate is 10%. So the first framing increases acceptance and the second one doesn't, even though it's the exact same numbers. You're just framing it differently. I think anybody who's listening who's not a doctor would be wondering, what are you able to do about this? How is this? Mm -hmm. Is this something trainable? Is this something mm -hmm. that has to be started from day one of medical school, right. how do you, uh, what do you do? So there have been studies, and like I said, this study by Jeffrey Norman, you can take a look and see, it's kind of a review of the literature. But teaching people about these cognitive biases, like going through like a talk, kind of like what I just did for the past five or 10 minutes, right? Okay, here's different kinds of biases. That does not prevent you from making these errors in the future, unfortunately. Just learning about the types of errors doesn't do it. The only thing that really helps you avoid these errors is increasing knowledge, right? One knowledge may be remembering to do type two thinking a lot more. The analytical thinking, like I said, you start with the whole chart, you look at everything, you don't jump to conclusions, right? Doing that. But it's also just knowledge. It's the example that you said before. A doctor's like, I saw this before somewhere else. If you have never heard of or read about or seen a certain diagnosis, how would you ever diagnose it in somebody? You have to be mm -hmm. aware of it, right? Yeah. So you really what you have to do is increase your knowledge base and doctors should always be learning. That's the best way to overcome these cognitive biases. And if you do think you're jumping to conclusions, just remember to go back to this type two slower learning. Okay. Awareness comes from education and training, I mm -hmm. guess. Okay. Educate yourself, doctors. Now, one thing I'm not understanding is I've actually been trying to see the correlation, but when you started this, you talked about a link with vaccine hesitancy, and I don't see mm -hmm. where bias and vaccine right. hesitancy come together. So, we were talking about biases in terms of physicians, in terms of these cognitive biases, but now let's flip this around. We're talking about ah. the average, so not in terms of physicians, but what I'm hoping is physicians will realize that patients, the average member of Joe Public, has these cognitive biases, but they're not using it for diagnosing medicine. They're using it to justify perhaps some vaccine hesitancy. So just as doctors need to be thinking, oh, I make these mistakes sometimes, and hopefully they figured that out after listening to this section of the podcast, they can maybe be a bit empathetic towards the average person who's using some of these biases subconsciously to justify vaccine hesitancy. Give me an example of uh, biases that are held among the vaccine sure. hesitants. Oh, yeah, I'll give you a couple. So one is, and some of them we already heard, right? But we're just going to frame them differently for the vaccine hesitant. So there's something called availability bias. So it's the availability of information. So there's lots of common vaccination reactions. Flu-like symptoms for 24 hours, soreness in the injection site. I'm sure you and I had each of those ones. Those don't make the news, right? So nobody the hears about The ones that make the news them. are the Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend. Have you heard yes, that one? Yes, with yes. the uh, testicular involvement. Yeah, yeah. And so, now he can't have babies well, no more. Apparently, that's what Nicki Minaj says. I mean, who mm -hmm. is, he was really a trusted source for <laughs> medical information. So, so you only hear about the rare examples. So that will bias your thinking, right? You don't hear about the more common typical side effects. Or how about those people who had no side effects? They're not the people broadcasting on the internet. Then we can talk about confirmation bias, like we talked about before for medicine, but slightly differently. But I think this is even more obvious, right? 
People who are predisposed to distrust vaccines are primed, their brains are primed to receive information that confirms the distrust. And this is exactly what happens in the echo chamber of social media. This is why Facebook groups, you just, and we all do it. You're scrolling through Twitter and then you're like, oh yeah, oh, here's an article about, for us, you know, it might be like people protesting the anti-vax protesters. Okay, yeah, let's see how this guy stuck it to the anti-vax protesters, you know what I mean? We're prone to hear about what we want to hear, what confirms our beliefs, right? Sure. And another one is optimism bias. And I'll tell you, Ali, like I've had some very good friends of mine tell me this optimism bias. So, okay, we know the risk of COVID may be quite high for various people, but individuals, they adopt an overly optimistic view about themselves where they're like, I know that lots of people get sick, ICU, I totally understand that, but I'm healthy. You know, I exercise all the time. I never got a cold in my life. Just to you be know, clear, this is not Dr. Asimov. No, this is me. I'm, 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 I'm you're, putting myself- You're in character. Uh, yeah, just like Eddie Vedder, right? I'm <laughs> just like Eddie Vedder, putting you myself are. in- I'm You just, are. I've called you Marble Mouth a bunch of times too, just like <laughs> Eddie Vedder has been called by a bunch of people. So this uncertainty regarding outcomes that gives people this moral wiggle room to rationalize their own behavior, right? So there's like- I don't need to get the vaccine. This is the person talking again. I should say it in Eddie Vedder's voice, but then nobody would understand anything. <laughs> I should get the vaccine. <laughs> They'll say, I don't need to get the vaccine because I probably won't get COVID. And even if I do, it probably won't be as bad as the vaccine side effects, which I've heard are really bad. Another one is anchoring bias. So vaccines are synonymous usually with immunity among the public, right? When was the last time you knew somebody who had rubella, polio, etc., smallpox, right? These don't exist anymore. But the fact that the COVID vaccine, we still see some breakthrough infections. They're like, yeah, you know, people are anchored on the thought that vaccines mean 100% immunity in a population. So knowing that, they can't accept this the breakthrough cases. A couple more. There's this intuitive bias. So Beliefs that are in line with their intuitions are easier to understand and remember. And in fact, if you think about things like the earth being round way back in the day, right? It took a long time to be accepted because intuitively the earth looks flat. So why would you think it was round, right? And I know there's still flat earthers out there who are online and stuff, but- Present, sir. I have my suspicions. Good God, imagine. No. <laughs> and But even vaccination is counterintuitive. Like the idea that we're injecting a dose of a weakened microorganism or their DNA or a part of their DNA or something that becomes their DNA into one's body, it creates immunity and helps you versus being harmful. Like the intuitive thing is, oh, that sounds bad. Why would you do that? Don't inject something into your body. That sounds bad. So this intuitive bias also plays a role. There's also this omission bias because our minds, this is very interesting, our minds have evolved to make the least costly decision when there's uncertainty, right? So when people face a choice between doing an action or doing nothing, they sometimes prefer to do nothing because that seems less harmful, right? As opposed to actively deciding to put an injection in your body. So what is the solution there? Because doctors would be presumably and hopefully more open to the training mm-hmm. and raising their own awareness and getting educated. What do you do with vaccine hesitant people who are maybe really grounded in their own biases? How That seems like a pretty uphill climb. There's a couple of things. So one is definitely, as you said, you just need to be aware of these biases. The more you're aware of them, just like for physicians, the more you're aware of them, the more you can actually do something about it. Wait. The physician can be aware of the patient's vaccine-hesitant yes, exactly, bias. Exactly, okay. Yeah. And what can they do? Give me an example. So I'll give you a couple. Let's get back to you role-playing again. I'll give you a couple examples. So, so I'll give you an example for real life with this omission bias. So sometimes, was I see, say I see a patient for seizures, and the family's undecided about whether to start medicine or not. And sometimes there's no right or wrong answer, Like, and we're having a discussion about it. And... They're like, well, we haven't decided. And then you keep kind of calling them, okay, have you decided yet? No, we haven't decided yet. Eventually, I often tell patients, you have decided. If you're not mm. taking a medicine right now, your decision, your decision yeah. is to not take a medicine. No, no, we haven't decided. No, until you start taking it, your decision is to not take it. And it's the same way with this. If you're undecided, you have to say, not making a choice is making a choice. That's one thing. 
Another thing that some people online uh, suggest is to not start to debunk myths if a patient is not asking you about it directly. And you can see this problem if we just expand to social media, right? Evermectin, which is the horse drug that horse, everybody's yeah. been chewing on lately. <laughs> the the issue with Evermectin is I totally agree we should debunk it, but some people never heard about it until you started to debunk it on your social media, on your Facebook page, or people started making jokes about it on late night. So sometimes for individual patients especially, maybe you don't need to start debunking things unless they're asking you about it. The other thing is to emphasize the reason why we get vaccine side effects, right? Like you get side effects because it often means your body is responding, right? Getting the flu, flu flu-like symptoms afterwards, the pain in the injection site. This is inflammation that's going on, but it means the vaccine is working. And another thing is to just make sure that people are always being offered vaccines at all times, right? You don't have to opt into it, but it's almost like you have to opt out in a sense. So it's when they see their specialist, when they see their family doctor, when they go to the emergency room, when they go to the pharmacist, it should always be brought up. Are you interested in this? Are you interested in this? And the more opportunities you kind of give for that in multiple areas of healthcare, the better, right? Even though I'm a specialist, I should still be asking about it and talking to them about vaccines. All right. And next week we'll be talking about, I know you named about 20 biases, but there is still one that we haven't talked about that is as important as any of them, which is a bias of basically prejudice. Yeah. And stereotypes. And we'll talk about how that influences healthcare next week. Yeah. All right. Well, Write in about your uh, Desert Island albums and also educate yourself to your own biases, Dr. Asif Doja tells you, although he is not your doctor. He will also tell you that. That's but right. That's a good suggestion. That's right. You should educate yourself, but remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. So consult medical professionals for actual medical advice, especially if you're curious more about getting your COVID vaccine. Thanks for listening, but Ali, anything to plug before we get out of here? In the coming days, I might have to, I might be able to talk about a show that I'm part of, a television sitcom that I'm very happy to be on, but you got to keep it tight, tight lips. Okay. Tight lips sink ships type of thing right now. That's what they say. Okay. Well, sounds good. So until next time, we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye.